0: here again we want to welcome you we're glad you could be with us today Uh, my name is Ben I'm the lead pastor here Uh, if you didn't get a chance to fill out one of those connect cards it is a, a great way for us to connect with you or if you want to stick around after church we would love to get to know you and meet you in person that would be wonderful if you want to grab your Bibles we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 this morning we are continuing our series that we started back in the fall we're picking back up in the gospel of Mark and it will take us all the way to Easter As you turn there, again, we want to encourage you to stick around after church today. We have our Vision Sunday Lunch, also known as T-Shirt Sunday for people who've been around Strong Tower for a little while. We have a T-Shirt every year, and those T-Shirts will be given out. They'll be free, so you get a free T-Shirt and lunch. I don't know what else you got going on today, but it's a great day. Uh, But yeah, we would love to have you as our guest. Even if you're new around here, we would love for you to just stick around, get to know a little bit about what's happening in our church. Uh, Mark chapter 11 And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. Let's hear the reading of God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. with the twelve. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, The Way of Triumph, The Way of Triumph. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who speaks to us. You are the God who makes yourself known. And so God, we pray that you would uh, help us to listen today as you speak in your word. Help us to hear what your spirit would want us to hear. Help us to be transformed in our own hearts, our own minds, all of our life by your word. Lord, may your word not return void, but may it do what you have purposed it to do today, to transform your people, to transform hearts, to be more like yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So our daughters have a new card game that they've started playing, and it's called Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. I'm going to try to get it right. Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. That's the title of the card game. And if you've never played it or heard about it, I had not either. Uh, They started playing this game without me. And so one day they're like, Daddy, you got to play this game with us. They start begging me, please, please play with us. I'm like, sure, it sounds weird, but I'll play with you. And so it's a card game that, you know, you got a stack of cards. So Maya, our youngest daughter, goes and grabs the cards and she brings them to the table. We're all sitting around the table. And she starts to explain to me how to play the game. And so basically, each person has their own little deck of cards, their own stack of cards, and everyone goes around the the circle, and we're turning the cards over. And every time someone turns a card over, you have to say one of those words, taco, cat, goat, cheese, pizza. So you know, if it's your turn, whatever the last person said, you say the next word. And it goes around the circle, and every time you flip it over, you have to say the word. But Uh, If if what you say is actually the picture on the card, as you flip it over, everybody has to slap the pile, right? So if if I flip over a taco and I say taco, everybody has to try to slap the, the pile as quickly as you can. And whoever slaps the pile last takes the pile. Right, That's how the game goes, and it's fast-paced, moving, and then there's some strange animals that pop up, and, and if one of the strange animals pop up, you have to do the motion of the animal before you slap the pile. And so, like for instance, there's a gorilla. You have to do this, where you beat your chest before you slap the pile, and if you do the wrong motion, you lose. So it's, it's fast-paced. Your brain's going in seven different directions at once, and we're starting to play this game, and I realized halfway into the game, she never told us how to win the game. So I look over at Maya and say, how do you play this or how do you win this silly game? She said, oh, like it had never crossed her mind to tell us how to win, right? She just told us how to play. And she said, oh, it's real easy. The winner is the person who gets rid of all their cards. That's how you win, right? What she left out of the instructions is often the first thing in the, in the written instructions, how to win. How to win? Because that's what everyone wants to know. No matter how silly the game is, no matter how elaborate the game is, how do I win the game? It's what all of us want to know, right? In all of life, how do I win at parenting? How do I win at finances? How do I win at, at uh, relationships? How do I win in every area of my life? And in fact, uh, you know, society has all kinds of answers to that question. All you got to do is Google self-help. You'll get 10 million answers, right? And and, and you could spend a thousand lifetimes watching all the videos and listening to the podcasts and listening to the TED Talks and reading all the self-help books, whatever it is. And, And lots of those things are helpful. And lots of those things can be beneficial. They can get you ahead in certain areas of life or whatever it may be. But the question is, how do I win, not just in those areas, but how do I win in my life with God? How do I win in my relationship with Jesus? How how do I win in this this thing that I've started to play maybe, but I don't really know where it's going? I don't really know how to make progress. I I don't really know what it's like to get to the end, the finish line. How, How do I actually triumph over all these issues in my life? I've got so many troubles, I've got sins that I'm battling with, I've got suffering that I'm going through, I've got losses and grief and pain. How, How do I make progress and actually win in this Christian life? That's what I want to look at today. That's really what I want to look at for the next few weeks as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark, because God has his own way of winning. And it's a surprising way. It's a different way in the Gospel. So we're continuing this series in Mark, and, and if you were with us in the fall, you might remember that Mark was split up into two sides, two, two halves of the book. So the first half of the book is answering this question about the person of Jesus. What did, or who is Jesus? Who, who is this man who's among us now that we're following? Who is that? Everyone in the first half of Mark is trying to figure that out. Jesus is doing all kinds of things that don't make sense, and he's saying things that are confusing, and they're trying to figure out who is Jesus, But then there's this turn in the book that now the second half of the book is all about Jesus' work. What did he come to do? We kind of have an idea now of who he is. We we know that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, but what does that actually mean? What did the Christ come to do? And now in, in Mark's Gospel, he really slows the pace down. If you remember, Mark's Gospel is one of the fastest pace. Mark loves the word immediately. Immediately, 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 it's like you're trying to catch up to Mark as he's running past, and you're trying to follow Jesus, but you can't keep up with Mark. That's the feeling of Mark. But now Mark slows down, and the last six chapters are all Jesus' last week. It's called the Passion Week. Jesus' last week on earth, Mark slows down and he focuses in on what Jesus actually came to do. And what you see as you, as you get a glimpse of this, is you see that Jesus came to help us triumph because our triumph is in him. Our triumph is in his triumph. The way we win is through the way he wins. So I want to look at that today. I want to look at that really the next couple weeks, but this is going to kind of get us started in that direction. And so I want to ask the question, how do we triumph over the troubles in our life? And the way of triumph is first found in Jesus's majesty. So this is the first point, his majesty, his majesty. Look at me at verse one as we jump into this text. Look at what it says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately, there's that word, as you enter into it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Now this this is one of the best scenes in Mark's gospel. Jesus and and the disciples they're they're on their way to Jerusalem, right for the Passover feast. They're making their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. It's a terrible treach. Like there's this hard uh, road to get up to it. It's thousands of feet above sea level. So they're they're making this this uh, walk up to Jerusalem, and they're coming to the last leg. And now they pause. They pause, and Jesus gives them some instructions. Jesus says, all right, I want two of you disciples to go into the village ahead of us. And then when you get to the village, you're going to find a colt tied up, this young donkey. And and when you get there and you find the colt, I want you to untie it, and I want you to take it. What? Jesus, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to take it. So, Jesus, you want us to go to this guy's house and steal his donkey? Well, not exactly. He said, I, I want you to, when, when you go, and anyone asks you what's going on, I, I want you to say this, the Lord has need of it. Oh, great, Jesus. Yeah. So now our plan is we're going to go to this guy's house. We're going to go steal his car and tell him that God told us to do it for him. That sounds like a terrible plan, Jesus. That, that doesn't sound like a great idea. We're going to go steal this guy's donkey. They go and do exactly what Jesus said. And sure enough, they go and they find in the village a colt tied up just as Jesus said, right? They untie it just like Jesus said. People ask them, what in the world are you doing? Just like Jesus said they would. And then they say, the Lord has need of it. Just like Jesus said to say. And then miraculously, they let him go with the donkey. Just like Jesus said. Mark, Mark is trying to paint the picture. He's saying this is what Jesus said and this is what they did. They did exactly what he said and what he said actually happened. I mean, what is happening here? Mark, Mark is painting this picture, taking a long time to give these instructions and, and to help us understand what's happening. What he's saying is Jesus is revealing to them something about himself. Jesus is revealing to them his divine kingship, right? Because listen, it's only God that could have known this was going to be there ahead of time. It's only God who could have known that that they would have been able to make this kind of claim because God owns the cult. It's only God who could have bend the heart of this person to actually give away his own cult to these random people who say God needs it. Jesus is claiming right here his divine kingship. When he says, tell them the Lord needs it, he's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord. I am the divine King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, because he's king, he owns and controls everything. You got to get that before we move on. Jesus as king, he owns and controls everything. There's an author named Tim Keller who tells a story of uh, his Sunday school teacher in 1970. I think he was in high school, maybe, and it was his high school Sunday school teacher. Uh, completely changed his life when he told him about the, the, just the expansiveness of the universe. And he used this illustration. He said, imagine for a moment the distance, the distance between the earth and the sun was reduced down to a, a stack, or, sorry, a one piece of paper. The thickness of one piece of paper. In reality, it's about 90 million miles, but just go with it for a second. Instead of it being 90 million miles, it's the thickness of one piece of paper. He said if that were the case, the distance between the earth and the, and the next star past the sun would be about 70 feet high, a stack of papers. You catch that? 70 feet high. I don't know if anyone in this room has ever seen a stack of papers 70 feet high. And then he said the diameter of the galaxy would be about 310 miles high. That, that's almost to Savannah, Georgia. That, that, that's what he's saying. He's saying it's, it's that massive. And then when you think about it, that's just our galaxy. And our galaxy is a speck of dust in the massive universe. And when you try to wrap your mind around that, this is what he said to him. He said... Jesus holds the entire universe in his hands. He owns it all. He owns it all. Listen to this. The psalmist says it this way. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Every mountain, every ocean, every nation, every city, every man, every woman, every child, every bird, every beast, every corner, every crevice, every molecule. God owns it all. Sometimes you can take that as an assumption and you forget just the the massiveness, the majestic kingship of God. His kingdom has no end. It just keeps going. I mean, just try to wrap your mind around that for a second. Let let your soul settle into that for a moment. That God owns all of it. It It should stir up in you something, some kind of awe, some kind of wonder, something that's beyond your ability to grasp that God could own that. God could be in control of all of that at the same time. It reminds us how small we are, right? It reminds us how seemingly insignificant we might be in that, that scope of what God owns, what God controls. And it reminds us how majestic he really is. Right? Jesus isn't the kind of king who you can just ignore or maybe invite into your life to help with some small issues you're struggling with. Jesus is the kind of king who owns everything. If he is who he says he is, then he owns it all. right maybe you've been wrestling with the claims of Christ for a little while and you and you've been considering Christ because you're, you're thinking in your life, you know, I've got some issues. i got issues in my marriage. i got issues in these relationships. i got issues at my job. i got issues in my body. i got all these issues. Maybe Jesus can, can help me. Maybe Jesus can heal me. Maybe Jesus can make this sadness go away. Maybe he can make me happy again. Whatever it may be, I don't know, but I would believe that you're probably not in this room or listening to this sermon if you didn't believe that Jesus might have a chance of helping you. Right? And so you're, you're considering inviting him into your life because maybe he can help me with these issues. And listen, Jesus can help. Jesus can, he can enter into your life and he can do some things in your life that maybe you wouldn't expect. But if that is all he is to you, you're missing who he is. When Jesus says, I am king of kings and Lord of lords, he's saying, I am so much more than a person who's just invited into your life to help you fulfill your dreams. I'm your king. I'm your king. Do you hear that? He's a king who claims ownership over everything. Everything. And so if change is going to happen in our life, if, if real triumph over all of our troubles is going to happen, here's how it works. You have to let go control. This is how it's different because if, if Jesus is just someone who comes alongside to help me with my issues that I'm struggling with, then I'm still, I'm still really in control of my life and Jesus is going to be the person who comes alongside to help guide me along the way as I live my hero life. But if I switch places and I I come under Jesus and, and I say he is now in control of my life, he is now king of my life, he claims ownership over everything, then he can look at every crevice and corner of your life and say the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. The Lord has ownership over your relationships. The Lord has ownership over your money. The Lord has ownership over your failures. The Lord Lord has ownership over your shame. The Lord has ownership over your guilt, over everything in your life. He owns it. There's nothing he can't look at in your life and say, the Lord has need of it. That's mine. That's what a king does. Jesus is saying in this text, he's saying, I am the king of kings coming into your life with all power and authority. But if he's that kind of king... Or if he is a king, what kind of king is he? This is where we look at next, his meekness. This is the second point. Look at his meekness. Look at verse 7. It goes on to say this, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. See, now we find out why Jesus wanted the colt. Jesus is trying to set up and carefully choreograph his entrance into Jerusalem. This is very intentional on Jesus's part. Jesus is putting together a scene that he wants people to see and, and, and know who he is. And so he puts together this scene where he's going to ride in on a donkey. But what's interesting is it, this would have been common in their culture that a king would walk in or, or ride into a town, but it would usually be on a horse. And they would usually come in to, uh, to kind of declare that they're, they're entering into this town for a reason. And everyone would, would shout and rejoice, just like this scene. right? It's just like this scene, that a king would enter into a town. But what's different here about what we would normally expect is that normally, if someone enters into a building or into a town, we don't lay down our cloaks for them. right? I don't know if people do that when you come into their house or not, but that's not normal. You don't normally cut the branches off a tree and lay them down on the ground. This is the kind of stuff that's for a royal entrance. This is not just a friend. This is not just a rabbi or a teacher. The crowds are saying, this is the king who's coming. This this is somebody who's come with power and authority and legitimacy. I mean, just imagine for a second the president of the United States, right? If the president travels by car, it's a big deal. When the president travels, they have this presidential motorcade, right? It's a fleet of vehicles, and often it's kind of like an armored White House on wheels, right? They've got their own military service. They've got their own communications department there. they've, They've got their own little hospital ready to go. They've got everything on site. And they've got all these different vehicles with different roles. They've got a pilot car who goes ahead and and looks out to make sure everything's fine. Then they've got these sweepers, these motorcycles who go through the roads and make sure people are off the roads. Then they've got, of course, the presidential limo, right? Which is, at the moment, it's this blacked-out SUV Cadillac that, that has all this kind of secret technology and gadgets on the inside that we don't even know about. And then there's always an identical SUV, just so you don't know which one the president's in. And depending on the, uh, the, the, the level of, of security that's needed, they have upwards of 45 vehicles. 45 vehicles. When the president arrives, it, it's an event. Like it, It's an event. And so you come to this scene, and Jesus is, is being treated like a king, and when he arrives, what's strange about the scene is he comes on a donkey. Again, in the ancient world, the kings would arrive and they would come into a town and when they would come, it was usually on a horse. The horse was declaring, I'm here to conquer. I'm here for a violent takeover. I'm here to show my power and my strength that I am the king and the king has arrived. The only time a king would ride on a donkey was if it was coming in peace. And so here's Jesus, this king who says, I own everything. The Lord has need of everything. And he comes into town and flips the script and doesn't come on a horse. He comes on a donkey. Why? I mean, just think about it. It'd be like the president arriving on a a two-speed scooter. I mean, it just feels uncomfortable. What, what, What kind of power is this? What, what kind of display of greatness and majesty is this, that you would come on a scooter? It's a clear message. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming for a violent takeover. I'm not coming to destroy. I'm coming meek. I'm coming gentle. I'm coming peacefully. Right? Meekness is, is strength under control, as one person defined it. It's strength under control. Jesus is showing his greatness through his gentleness. Through his gentleness. See, listen, there, there's simply no one else like Jesus. There's simply no one else like him. You, you might know people in your life who, who are one or the other. They're either great or they're gentle. right? You might know somebody who's very gentle. They're kind, they're patient, they, they talk slowly, they, they just are, are thoughtful. They're, they're the kind of person that's just so gentle. But, but when it comes to confronting evil, when it comes to dealing with sin... That they back away because they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to be great in the moment of confrontation. They don't know how to be forceful when they need to be forceful. Or you might know someone who's great and powerful, but they're not gentle at all. This happens all the time in leadership. Somebody gets elevated to leadership and they've got power and influence and, and privilege now, and they take that power and they abuse that power. They're able to get things done. But in the process of getting things done, they push through people, they crush people, they're they're harsh with people, they're angry with people, they're not gentle at all. And somewhere in that spectrum is all of us, right? We're somewhere in that spectrum, but not a single one of us holds these two perfectly, except Jesus. Jesus is the only only person who holds these two radically different traits together. He's great and he's gentle. See, it's in Jesus only that we we find this infinite majesty, yet this complete humility. This perfect justice, yet boundless grace. All sufficiency, yet completely dependent on his Father. You hear that? This is Jesus. There's total, complete both sides. There's none like him. And listen, it is so comforting to know that Jesus is gentle with us in our sin and our struggles. I want you to hear this. He he's not harsh. He's not hurried. He's not yelling at you. When you you think about Jesus and you think about how he thinks towards you, what what is the image that comes to mind? What's the emotion that comes to mind? What's the feeling that comes to mind? Because I want you to hear this. Jesus comes into your life on a donkey of peace. Jesus enters into your life not with harsh, angry, hurried uh, yelling at you, but he enters in, as as the Bible says, with steadfast, abounding love. Steadfast, abounding love. The Bible says that he's, he's patient with us because he knows what it's like to be tempted. It says he empathizes empathizes with us because he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus knows the struggle of sin. Jesus knows the struggle of suffering. Jesus knows what it's like to lose people that he loves. Jesus knows what it's like to be in a place where he doesn't know what's going to happen next. Jesus knows what it's like for him to cry out, God, take this from me. Father, take this cup and then get a no. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And so he empathizes. He moves in gently. He's patient with your sin. He's patient that you have to keep repenting over and over and over again about the same sins that you're frustrated with. He's patient as you deal with the disordered desires in your own life that are hard to get away from, the idols that that have a hold of your soul. And He's patient with it because he knows the struggle. He knows the temptation. And yet he's overcome it. Listen, he's gentle, but don't forget meekness is strength under control. That means Jesus actually has the ability to do something about our sin. Jesus actually has the ability to do something about our suffering. Jesus actually has the ability to change what we can't change, to do what we can't do. And so Jesus, as he enters into your life gently, he enters into your life with greatness. He enters into your life with all power in his hands. He enters into your life as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who actually has the ability to transform what you can't transform. He can transform the hearts of your teenagers. He can transform your marriage that seems like it's dying. He can transform your struggle with pornography and sexual sin. He can transform your depression and anxiety. He can transform it because he's great. He's not just gentle. He comes in with gentleness to do the greatest work you could ever do. As your Lord, He can transform and He'll do it gently. So, how does He do this majestic and meek triumph over our troubles? This is the last part His method. His method. Look at verse 9. This is incredible. It says And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, the crowd erupts in praise, right? They've laid down their cloaks. They've laid down their branches. And now they start singing and praising him, just like they did in Psalm 118. They're they're quoting Psalm 118 and ascribing it to Jesus. And, And just imagine for a moment, this is a crowd full of impoverished and oppressed people. It's the peasants from the fields. That's why Mark points out that, that they went to the fields, got, fe- or got branches from the fields, and now are laying them at the feet of Jesus. And they start to cry out, Hosanna. And the word Hosanna in Hebrew means, save us now. Save us now. It, and by Jesus' time, the word was kind of in a liturgical use. In other words, they used it in the church services. And so it kind of became so common that it, it was almost similar to, uh, to Hallelujah where they would say it often as, as, a, as a general praise. But it still held on this tension of both praising God and praying for deliverance. So Hosanna kind of holds together this sense that, God, we're praising you for what you've done, but we're, we're asking you to do more. We're asking that back here you would save us. Back here you would save us from these, these Romans. You would save us from our troubles. You would save us from our sins. You would save us from all these issues. Hosanna, Hosanna. That's what they're crying. And so you can feel the tension. You can feel the expectation. And they they take it up one step further and they say, Hosanna in the highest. May you establish your son David's kingdom. Listen to what happens next. It ends in verse 11. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What? It just ends. It just ends with no climax. It felt like like there's this sense that it's moving towards, they're going to march on Jerusalem. They're going to take down Herod's palace. The the, the crowds are cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, let's set up the kingdom of David. We're going to take over the Romans. And then there's nothing. Jesus goes into the temple, looks around and says, let's go to bed. And the next verse is when they wake up in the morning. It's completely anticlimactic. And every scholar in the last few centuries has said this, this, this is intentional on Mark's point. Mark is pointing out a contrast between Jesus and the crowds here. The crowds are expecting something that Jesus isn't expecting. The crowds are expecting that they would would have this overthrow of the Romans, that they would have this this physical kingdom that they would set up, and Jesus would get rid of all their problems and issues, and it would come through a violent taking up of arms. And Jesus had a completely different vision. Rather than them taking up arms and taking down the people, he's going to lay down his own life. See, his way of winning... Listen, it it wasn't compatible with their way of winning. Their way of winning was to take up arms. His way of winning was to lay down his life. Jesus triumphs over sin and suffering by entering into it himself. That's Jesus' way. See, if you fast forward in the New Testament, uh, John, the apostle, was exiled into uh, the Isle of Patmos, which was off the coast of present-day Turkey, I believe. And so uh, John was exiled during this Roman oppression of the early church. And and everybody's wondering, like, what's going to happen? The the Roman government is against us. People are dying. People are losing their families. People are getting exiled and and arrested. What's going to happen? It seems like Jesus didn't keep his promises. It seems like Jesus has lost control of this world. It seems like Jesus isn't doing what he said he was going to do. And so we're not sure if we can trust Jesus. And people start leaving the church. And it was during this season, during the persecution, that John is exiled. And while John is exiled, he gets a vision from God, and he writes it down, and it's what we call the book of Revelation now. And in Revelation 5, part of John's vision, I want you to hear it today, because it's it's exactly what Mark is talking about. Listen to what he sees in in, uh, Revelation chapter 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, listen, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Did you hear the contrast? The the, the vision In in the vision John sees, he, he hears a voice saying, Look, behold, there's a lion, the lion, the tribe of Judah. And so John is probably ready to look, ready to behold. There's going to be a lion. He's going to conquer everything. And when he looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. He sees a lamb. Jesus, listen, Jesus is both. Jesus is a lion and Jesus is a lamb. But the way Jesus is going to conquer, the way he's going to bring about his kingdom, the way he's going to triumph over our sin and suffering isn't going to be the way of the lion. The way Jesus is going to conquer is going to be the way of the lamb. He's going to lay down his life for the people that he came to save, right? He wouldn't take up arms to charge the Roman officials. He wouldn't start a military campaign, campaign or even use his own divine power to overthrow their government. No, the only way his kingdom would triumph would be the way of the lamb. He would lay down his life for our life. He would lay down his life for his enemies. He would lay down his life for our sins. He would lay down his life for our suffering. The cross, listen, the cross was where his majesty and his meekness meet. It's where his majestic power comes to meet his meekness and his love. They come together at the cross to have the greatest display of his power. He gave it all up. That's his greatest display of power, that he would give it all up for the people who would kill him to save us from our sin and death. Jesus is already triumphed. Jesus is already high and exalted. Jesus is already on his throne, but and his death and his resurrection have secured that forever. But listen, there's gonna come a day when Jesus will come again. There's gonna come a day when Jesus will, will come and he won't come on a donkey like before, but he'll come on a horse. Right? One day he will come to finish all that he started. One day he will come to conquer all of our remaining sins. One day he will come to wipe away every tear. One day he will come to make death no more. One day he will come to put all our pain in the past. One day he will come to triumph over all our troubles. And we will say with the crowds, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He has saved us. That's the hope that Jesus would enter in triumphantly. Do you need his triumphant grace today? That's how I want to end this morning. Because Jesus is inviting us to to invite him in. And when you invite Jesus in, he he comes in as the one who comes gently. He comes gently. He comes with kindness, with care, with love, but he comes powerfully. And he comes claiming everything. He looks at your life and at my life and he says, I have need of that. That is mine. Give it to me and let me do something great with it. Whatever that struggle is, whatever that sin is, whatever that pain is, whatever the celebration is, Jesus says, it's mine, but I want you to surrender it. See, the life of faith is one of surrendering. It's one of simply saying to Jesus, I surrender my kingship. I surrender my lordship over my life and and my understanding of how I can control things and run things, and I give it to you and let you be who you are. You are the real king. You are the real lord of my life. And so I surrender. I surrender. Like when we sing in worship and, and you see people raising their hands, that's what that means. When you raise your hands in worship, you're saying, I surrender God my whole life. My whole life to you. There's not an area that I can keep to myself. I surrender it to you. And so maybe that's you today. You need his triumphant grace to come in and to gently yet greatly transform and change everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are truly Lord. You look at my life and you look at everyone's life and you say, it's mine. I I hold that in my hands. And there's so much great comfort in that, even though it sounds threatening. It sounds like you might ask for things or demand things that that we don't want to give up, but yet when we give them up, and we do just as you said we should do, incredible things happen just the way you said they would. And so God, I pray for the gift of faith for all of us in this room that we would trust you. We would have faith enough to surrender, to believe that whatever the trouble is, whatever the pain is, whatever we're walking through right now, whatever the failure that we may have experienced, however sin is entangled in our heart and our mind, God, we know that you own us. And so we want to surrender. do it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name.